Welcome to this Curious Serengeti. We are your hosts, David Swinger and Matthew Keener. Stop what you're doing and subscribe to our podcast. Leave us an awesome five-star review and follow us at Serengeti Sec on Twitter. We're here to talk about some recent news headlines and hopefully provide some insight, analysis, and practical application that you can take into the office to help you protect your organization. And as usual, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours and ours alone and do not reflect the views or opinions of our employers. Full disclosure, David does not exist. He is a narrow scope AI using text to voice created for the podcast. David actually died years ago, but I keep him alive with me here on the podcast. You are welcome. <laughs> so for our first article, it's titled, We're Entering the Age of Unethical Voice Tech from Security Intelligence. Voice AI is getting better and better, and it's getting more useful. Wonderful. Oh, wait, except now that it's fairly easy for attackers to generate AI deepfakes of voice. Ah, how useful could that be anyways? I guess pretty useful if you like making money. <laughs> or stealing money. I don't know if you call that making money necessarily. They're working. They're working. The it's article wants it's a business. The article wants to discuss whether this is ethical or unethical. We're not talking about this. We're more concerned with how it can be used for malicious purposes. Uh, but since it exists, there's no there's no turning the clock back. There's no putting this genie back in the bottle. We have to learn to deal with this. Yeah. So there have been attempts. I'm going to start with something from the article that actually mentioned some of the history of this. There's been attempts to create easy voice editing programs for users in the past, but they've typically been canned for tech companies. The example they brought up was Adobe Project Voco in 2016, which I had never heard of. You could apparently type words and the AI would use audio samples to create a copycat recording. The example demo was them changing and I kissed my dogs and my wife to a voice and I kiss Jordan three times. I find it really weird they use that kind of blackmail-y example in the demo. Uh, but Wait, so you would record, I kissed my dog and my wife, and it would change what you said to no, I no, kiss no. Jordan three times. This was the public demo they did. They had an audio sample of someone saying, and I kissed my dogs and my wife, and they changed that audio sample in the demo, the live demo to and I kissed Jordan three times. Oh, so, okay. I, yeah, I find it super weird that they made such a creepy, blackmail-y example part of their demo. Like, it would have made a lot more sense to do, like, error correction. Like, have somebody, like, stumble or, or, or stutter and remove that. And they've been like, look, we're helping people that have trouble with public speaking. So... But apparently the software needed 20 minutes worth of a person's speech. And in a more modern example, the podcast software I used to edit this show is called Descript. And it has a similar feature, which it rolled out in 2021, I believe. So five years later, I haven't used it yet, but apparently you have to read about 20 minutes worth of text. It's got, it's got several hundred words that you have to read. And then based on that, it can, you can just type words and it will create audio using your voice. I may actually do that this week and maybe we'll have David... Say some interesting things in the future. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, I bet the 20 minutes is probably comprised of all the phonetics that are more most of the phonetics, not just words. Uh, the article points out there's plenty of legitimate uses as well. Everybody's familiar with Siri and Alexa. There was a valedictorian who couldn't speak, used this to give their commencement speech. Text to voice in the car or voice to text in the car, customer service lines, because we can't pay humans to talk to people. We have to. Get computers on that. Well, you know what's interesting about this 
is that they offered something like this to Stephen Hawking and he turned them down and he wanted to, com- <laughs> he wanted to keep the computer voice for himself. He said the only thing he didn't like about it was it made him sound American, <laughs> which funny. who wants to sound American? Well, over the past few years, though, we've actually seen a couple incidents that have involved AI-generated voices. The first one that at least is publicly well-known is in 2019, there was $240,000 transferred based on a mimicked company executive. In 2020, although this didn't come out until late 2021, in 2020, there was $35 million transferred by a Hong Kong bank based on a voice call with a director at a company that the person at the bank knew personally. It was good enough to fool them into uh, transferring that money. I think if I remember rightly, the 2019 one, they said the voice sounded weird, but they thought they were foreign and they thought there were some cultural issues and... So, but by 2020, it was good enough to fool somebody who knew the person. That's like some Mission Impossible stuff there. <laughs> yeah. The article claims it's now common for attackers to deliver AI voicemails to accompany phishing emails as additional, you know, verification, social proof type stuff. So I don't know if I've seen that. Although, frankly, anytime I see an email saying you have a voicemail, I know it's phishing anyways, <laughs> just delete it. So maybe I should pay more attention to those. So why does this matter? Well, can audio evidence be used for anything anymore? I mean, we've gone through this with picture evidence, right? Where you can Photoshop crazy things in there. So I don't, I don't know if audio evidence at this point in time is should now be considered um, inadmissible in court and unusable for anything business related. I don't know. Years ago, they used to say that you know you could mimic the sound of someone's voice, but if you ran it through a sound analyzer, it was obvious that it wasn't the person's voice. So this, but, the impression mm-hmm. that I got from this article was that they're getting to the point now where. Even that voice analyzer is going to be fooled, not just the human ear to be fooled by the sounds. Even if they weren't didn't fool voice analyzers, who has a voice analyzer? Like, or is that going to become standard issue on your phone? Like you're talking to somebody on the phone and the phone's going to pop up a message saying like, this voice is being faked. That would actually uh, well, be kind of cool. <laughs> no, well, that would be cool. But I was thinking about, you mentioned evidence. So I was thinking, uh, you know, if I it see, goes to a court of law, I'm sure you could bring out something like that. You know what, though? You're, I wonder if I wonder if voice print analysis would work on these. Because for companies, that might be worth it to buy or purchase some sort of software package to analyze. Anyway, so additionally, the article, and this is really outside of the scope of the article of the podcast, but I thought it was super interesting. Voices cannot be copyrighted or trademarked. That's wacky. So, and I was wondering, does that mean... Can a company use a deep fake of a popular actor in their commercial without paying them? Well, that actually reminded me of a commercial uh, several years old now with Arlie Ermey advertising beer. And they uh, photoshopped in John Wayne with John Wayne's voice into that commercial. And uh, many years ago, also, there was a episode of Creep Show where they used the likeness and the voice of Humphrey Bogart in the episode. Hmm. So it's not like Hollywood is not already doing this to some degree, well, uh, but I, it hasn't always, been a big deal. Yeah. Well, I had always assumed that they had paid the estate of the actor. So I, I guess my, 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 my question here is not if you can do it. You definitely can. The question is, do you have to pay them? <laughs> All right. So what can you do about it? What should you do about it? Well, you can't trust email anymore. You can't trust text because you can steal a SIM card. You can't trust voice anymore. What's left is in-person and video, right? And how long will video be available for any any kind of process that where you're making a significantly impactful decision? Yeah, I think we're going to have to go back to sealed envelopes and code books. <laughs> you know, open envelope one, 
turn code book to page 49 <laughs> or something like that. That'd be hilarious. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could do biometric verification or certificates, but then somebody could still steal the physical device or steal your thumb. <laughs> your thumb. I really don't want to have a thumb stolen. <laughs> the article recommends limiting how much audio content is released from your company, but I'm not sure that's reasonable. Most publicly traded companies have to release the recordings where they do their quarterly talk with investors and there your CEO is talking. Podcasting and other public appearances are very common for executives because they're trying to get their name out there so they can be you know, a capitalist celebrity. Yeah. You imagine Tim Cook not doing the WWDC or, yeah. you know, it's, I mean, that quite frankly, when I read that, I was like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. I think really what it is, is for, you have to figure out your threshold for risk. You know, maybe if you're a small company, that's $10,000. Maybe if you're a big company, that's a million dollars and set your threshold where those decisions have to be made in person or using some other out of band way that the attackers don't have access to. Right. Yeah. Uh, you and I had talked before about like a FaceTime being required yeah. for yeah. certain transactions, things and like that'll, that. That'll that'll work for another couple of years, <laughs> and then we'll have to. Then it's going to be back to in person, which is tough with all these remote teams. Oh. You're going to have to fly out. But is it worth saving a million dollars to? Fly like that, it's, over? It's, it's back to the sealed envelopes. <laughs> yeah, that's you funny. know, once a quarter you have to you have to you have to FedEx a certified container of envelopes or something cheaper than flying code books. I just wanted the excuse to travel. <laughs> hey. Well, that might be your company's process. I'm going to try and talk him into it. And then it would be like, we have to go to Hawaii to make these decisions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can't go to someone else's office. You both must both fly <laughs> to Hawaii to a, a, a third party. You both have to go to Vegas to have the a, a certain Elvis impersonator. <laughs> Authenticate the authenticate transaction. You. Uh, it's a hunk of hunk of burning love. <laughs> yeah. Because nobody imitates Elvis. All right. So the next article is the White House to tech world promise you'll write secure code or the feds won't use it. And oh, no. Based on that headline, who wrote that, Matt? I'll give you one guess. Oh, the register. <laughs> I had to look. I should have known. You had to look. Oh, come on. Cheater. So a re recent cybersecurity executive order from May 2021 uh, includes the requirement that federal agencies need to get self-attestation from third-party software vendors, third-party software vendors for the software that they that the agency uses. And whenever major code changes are or they renew the license, they have to get a new self-attestation, and uh, they must participate in a vulnerability disclosure program. Well, that solves the problem. Sure, I'm glad they yep, did that. Done. The government has declared it, therefore it shall be. Uh, and they also could accept a third-party assessment from a FedRAMP third-party assessor organization, a 3APO. And they were so close. That was so close. They should have done 3PO, third-party organization. Boom, 3PO. Well, I think with this, then you can reasonably think that's 3PO's evil twin. <laughs> it's, it's involved in the government. So my first question on this is how worthwhile is a self-attestation from a vendor? So they lie all the time in sales. Why would this be different? I, what? Never. I've never heard a vendor lie. Uh, we swear this is going to stop all the malware. Yeah. 
100%. But one thing for sure is this is going to add to the cost of software. But how would it add the cost of software when they're just going to lie? Well, they have to spend more money and charge more to give the impression that they aren't. Yeah. No, you're right. Because the, they wouldn't, the government wouldn't believe it if they didn't have some sort of additional charge for it, right? Right, exactly. Like, what did you do? We're like, oh, we had to do a whole bunch of things. That's why it's costing you 20% more. Right, because imagine if they said, hey, you got to do this now, and they don't raise the price of their software, and the government's like, well, why weren't you doing this the whole time if it doesn't cost you anything extra? Yeah. But it, based on what I read in, in, the, uh, in the order, which I, I admit, I freely admit I skimmed. I didn't read the entire thing thoroughly. I didn't see anything in there about auditing or anything like that in order to validate the attestation. So how uh, the their ability to be certain that this is accurate is, you know, not not likely. They're not likely to find that. Yeah. And you, I can almost guarantee you as well that there are going to be waivers. You know, the government or the agency is going to go to whoever they have to. It's actually outlined in the uh, in the order. I don't recall off the top of my head. But they're going to go and they're going to say, hey, I need a waiver for this vendor because they're critical and they can't do this. So they're going to get their waiver and they're going to do it. You know, they're going to buy that software anyway. And the, the paper also mentioned that they don't have to do this for the software they write themselves. And if you've been to any organization that's of any age, uh, there's always legacy code that is a pain in uh, is that from a security professional's perspective is going to be a, a pain because not only is that code going to be difficult to to keep secure, a lot of times that code is going to be tied to legacy software or legacy operating systems that you're going to have to maintain in order to ensure that code still runs. So this is still going to be have huge leave huge gaps in the the security for these agencies with their software. Yeah, now, it's, it's actually kind of interesting. I was listening to a podcast talking about cloud and they were talking about how many companies are doing it exactly wrong by just doing lift and shift and not taking advantage of all the built-in functionality in cloud. And the guy on the podcast was talking about how really you have to rewrite your applications to really take advantage of cloud. You can't just slap it in there. Well, you can, but you're not going to get any of the advantages. Right. And they're not going to, I mean, the whole point of moving to cloud in theory is to save time and money. And if you had to rewrite all your applications, which is going to have a cost and you have to spend the time to rewrite those applications, you're losing out on both of those. Mm -hmm. uh, so organizations are not going to want to do that. But also within the document, I thought this was, this was very interesting where they say, and quote, the term software for the purposes of this memorandum includes firmware operating systems, applications, and application services, e.g. cloud-based software, as well as products containing software. What does not contain products software today? containing software. Toasters contain software. Because huh. they're talking about firmware and contain yeah. software. So this is virtually everything under the sun is going to contain this. So they're going to have get attestations from printer vendors and router vendors. And, and when I say router vendors, I'm thinking about Soho routers or something like that, not Cisco, which is obvious they're going to get attestations from Cisco. <laughs> um, but that's that's a lot. 
Agencies have 270 days to collect those self-attestations. Is this enough time for vendors to actually rewrite that insecure code? No, probably not. Well, then they don't have to necessarily rewrite the, the, the secure code, but they have to follow the process, which is outlined by NIST for how to do secure coding. So <laughs> what they're saying here, write secure code. <laughs> they don't have to write secure code. They have to follow the process. So within 270 days, these software companies would have to basically realign the way that they perform or the way that they produce software in order to be able to even have that attestation. And that seems, that also seems highly unlikely that they'll be <laughs> able to say, we've worked all of our software producing processes to now follow the NIST framework for secure process, secure software production. So this is, e I think this is even harder than what you're talking about with the production of secure code. So this is really, it's a, it's a pipe dream. I don't know. They're going to have to get a whole bunch of extensions or something. I'm not sure we know what this is going to look like. But on top of that, to quote the article, Uncle Sam wants federal agencies and software providers to keep those attestations hush-hush so that America doesn't give foreign spies and other miscreants a heads up on how to break into U.S. networks. The agency shall take appropriate steps to ensure that such documentation is not posted publicly either by the vendor or by the agency itself. The rules instruct. So they're going to have to come up with some kind of classification mechanism or something to keep this information, I mean, for lack of a better term, secret. Yeah. But what if France comes out with a similar, a similar declaration to say that a company must do almost the exact same thing except for France? Yeah, but now they can't use their attestation from the U.S. because it's secret. Right. But if they give the same attestation to France, presumably it's going to have the same type of information in there that indicates, hey, we could do this, but not this. And on top of this, you've got vendors that are going to be supplying software to multiple agencies. So how are they going to deconflict that they gave the attestation to the Department of Treasury? And now do they have to give a similar attestation to the Department of Agriculture or you know, is it whoever gets it first is going to maintain it and ensure that the vendor keeps that up? Is there going to be a central repository? This is just going to be a mess for them to track and maintain. I'm sure they'll put out a RFP for somebody to build a tracking system. Yeah, a multi-million dollar Obamacare webpage type of scenario is what I imagine. It just oh, that needs would, an you access know, database. You know, you know what would be spot on for this though? They release an RFP to produce this, and the vendor that gets awarded the contract has to get a waiver <laughs> for the software they're going to produce to track and store the attestations for the software that other companies are producing. That's funny. Wow. Oh, I can't wait to see it. But the memo suggests that they have software bills of materials as well as an example that they meet to secure coding development. But what even though they mention that, what they actually say in there is they may collect, not must collect. So there's no, there's not a lot of teeth to say that we have to have these artifacts either that that prove that what you say is accurate. Hmm. All right. There was also a senior administration official quote. We are all using the same software. 
We're all using Outlook email. We're all using Cisco and Juniper routers. So essentially by setting these secure software standards, we're benefiting everyone broadly. That's true. I mean, I guess fair enough. Yeah. I guess the question is going to be in practice. Are they they actually going to improve the security or are they going to find a clever way around it and just charge more money? I'm guessing the latter. (laughs) I mean, either software is going to get better or and or more expensive. But I think this is really just going to be another failed idea where, you know, both vendors and the government agencies end up gaming the system to ensure that they're able to use the software they want to use at the price point they want to use it without too much work. Uh, but regardless, this whole thing's going to be a shit show. Yeah, someone's guaranteed. And you, and you see this at the end of Empires where, you know, it's obvious that the government is full of incompetent idiots who can't get out of their own way. I really hope you're wrong. Anyways, <laughs> title three. This is not this is not an end of the Empire podcast, although maybe that should be our next <laughs> one. For article three today, my favorite information security spirit animal, Anton Chewbacan. So today he had a short blog, or well, he had a long, long blog post called On Trust and Transparency and Detection that he wrote with Oliver Rochford, Rockford, Rochford, I don't know, on knowing what you're detecting. It initially starts with a history of detection. They review how initially detections were secret sauce. You never knew why it fired. Then snort got popular and open source detections became a thing. Thank goodness. Uh, Someone who spent a lot of time doing sock work, closed detections are awful. Getting a portion of a packet and a generic description on why it's bad makes it really difficult to make a good decision on whether that is a false positive or a true positive. And the portion of the packet, you're just hoping you get that. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes you, just, you get a, just get a generic description. Yeah, the one that the one that there's a couple that are my favorites with related to EDR, where it says something like something touched this EDR process. Okay, oh, McAfee's something. famous for that. <laughs> yeah, and they're super noisy. There's also, do you remember mm-hmm. uh, that one? Also, the their their network detections had a lot of trouble. They were pattern matching off of strings in pcaps and they would present that's where i got the partial they would present you with a partial packet or just the packet and not the not the complete stream so you had no context of what would the rest like maybe it was an html file or maybe it was a document file or those were those were bad i'll probably bleep out the specific product because i don't want anybody coming after me but yeah this is this is super this is more common than i wish that it was i think what was that there was that firewall that we used as well that also had those closed detections. And that was only like five years ago. Yeah. Anyways, his point though is as detections are getting more complex, they're turning into the detection as code has been big this year. They're relying more on AI and machine learning and they're getting opaque again. My first thought when he said this was, man, yeah, like how many analysts would understand an AI machine learning detection? And frankly, should they need to? Should you need to have like a statistics or AI background to be able to like do security and analytics? Uh, There's no way you could afford to hire someone that had that skill set. Yeah. In order to do your That's your tier one SOC analyst is now needs to have a machine learning background. Yeah, no way. And he also commented on increasing uses of MSSPs and MDRs where they may consider their detection logic, their secret sauce as part of their value proposition, and they may not send you that. They just send you the alert saying something bad happened. Here's what you should do next. Right. So 
I picked out three discussion points because frankly, this was a pretty dense article and I don't want to just describe the whole article and then read it off Not as much fun as that is for me. But you should definitely go and read the article. It's de- it's it's more than worth it. Mm-hmm. So the first item, closed logic makes a rule difficult to determine true positive, false positive, and impossible to tune. They linked to a study that was locked for me when I tried to visit. It said, you don't have access to it. Please request access. But that study they said claims 99% of detections are false positives. For out of the box detections, that sounds about right. Yeah, but not necessarily for custom detections. 99% should be a little bit high for anybody who's writing their own detection. I would hope so. Yeah, it's it's in here thinking about whether it's 99% of detections or false positives. I find it's helpful. There's actually a analog here in in testing for diseases. So, for example, if you have a test if you have a test that accurately detects a disease 99% of the time and it generates a false positive 1% of the time, that sounds extremely accurate, right? only 1% false positive rate. So unfortunately, when you apply that to the law of large numbers, you can still get millions of false positives. If you took a test that detected an illness with a 1% false positive rate and you gave it to 100 million people, you would have 1 million false positives. Even if, like, let's say that only five people in that whole population had that disease, you might detect all five of those people that actually have the disease, but then you'd have a million false positives that you think have the disease. Yeah, Bruce Schneier is big on on calling out this this law of large numbers and false positive rates. Yeah, and this is what you see all the time in a network. Simple behavior that looks like it should be very accurate. It turns out when you have a network with thousands and thousands of devices on it, generating millions and hundreds of millions of events per day. One example, there's been some work on finding logins related to Pash the Hash attack. Pash, Pash the Hash attacks. There's a good article I found where someone researched exactly what it looked like in the logs when someone did a Pass the Hash, Pass the Hash attack. Maybe you should use an acronym instead. Turns out though, in a very large network with a lot of endpoints, there are a surprising amount of events that match that exact pattern that looks like a pass the hash. Now, it may be a completely accurate detection in a small network or maybe in a very uh, a very uniform network, but in a large network with mixed subnets, you actually get way more false positives than you do accurate detections. But also, I was even thinking about this, are how many companies are even looking as the accuracy of each individual rule as a metric? I know MSSPs do, but I don't think many private companies are looking at each individual rule with a, you know true positive, false positive rates per rule. No, but if you can, that's really helpful yeah. to, make, to curate and manage your content. Yeah, it's super useful. Should probably be doing at least an annual review of your rules and looking at those true positive and false positive rates per rule and how often it fires. One thing I saw, I don't know how interesting this is, but one thing I saw was to actually put a dollar amount to each of the rules for how much time they waste. Because if you can assume, like if you're, or especially if you have a better way of figuring out exactly how much time analysts spend on the rule, or if not, you know, assume five or 10 or 15 minutes per rule and then multiply that out by how many false positives you have, and then multiply that out by the average cost of your analysts. And you may be surprised at how many thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars are being wasted by bad rules. Yeah, and uh, even if you did something like that and you averaged to say that the average mm-hmm. rule takes this amount of time, that would still be advantageous, but versus saying that this detection generally takes 
longer to investigate or shorter to investigate, you know, yeah. even on average, that would still be very eye-opening for a lot of folks. Yeah. And that'll, if you go by the rule too, you're going to find stuff where you're like, wow, this rule fired 300 times last year and none of those were a true positive. And that's a good indication that that rule needs to be heavily tuned or removed. So I guess depending on the size of your sock, like maybe, maybe when it does find something, it's really super bad. And you're like, you know what? I'm totally fine with having my analysts waste their time 300 times a year on this, but really think you should do something about that. All right. He also brings up the point that if we move, as we move to more automated response, what happens when a closed source detection leads to an automated response that shuts down a business critical server? Who is responsible for that? Well, uh, it, it, I mean, if you're going to do something like that, you'd need to have a solid process for the approval of saying that that automation is going to take place. I would say much, much along the same lines of a standard change. If you're familiar with the change management process in IT, where mm-hmm. you have a standard change that you document it, but it doesn't have to go through the formal approval process because it, the, the, that change itself as a concept or as an idea has been pre-approved for execution without formal approval every time it mm-hmm. comes up. So I'd say you need something like that for your automation process so that you can say, no, we have a thorough process for executing this. And it went through that process and it met all the requirements and got the proper approvals to execute as an automated process. And if that's solid, you can defend that. Now, the problem here is if that happens too often, they're going to just get rid of that process altogether and your automation is going to go away. Yeah. And it was interesting he mentioned that here because honestly, I've worked with automation tools now for the last three or four years, and I don't think we should be automatically doing much of anything. I think that uh, I don't. I don't think I can. I don't think I'm allowed to name the sock, but I've spoken with a sock that is fairly mature in this process, and they don't automatically do almost anything. What they have is they bring the alerts into their automation tool, and they use the automations as like a roster or a menu of options for the things that the security analyst would do anyways, like containing a system or resetting credentials. What they did was they just converted that into a button that you can hit. So you can, you know, contain a system with the click of a button rather than pivoting over to your EDR tool and manually doing it. So mm-hmm. they're, they're using it where there's still a human in the loop making those decisions and they're, they're, they're simplifying and shortening their response times. They're just not automatically responding. Yeah. Well, that goes right back to what we were just talking about a minute ago. With if you even if you have a 99% certainty rate, there's still mm. that 1% failure. Because the idea of doing automation is you automate away the certain good and the certain bad, and you're left with the nebulous middle. But the problem is that those things on the edge are really, really tiny. Yeah. He did bring up the interesting point that in self-driving cars right now, apparently some self-driving car manufacturers are offering insurance where the driver won't be held responsible for crashes. And he suggested maybe that was an option for vendors with these automated responses and the detections. I don't know about that one. Yeah. I'd say it's a little consolidation if your self-driving car kills you or if an automation cause you to go bankrupt because you can't service your customers. You know, it sounds great, but it, it's a, it's, it's insurance, like you said. It's 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 a risk transference. It's not actual risk mitigation process. Um, so the authors suggest that, as the second point, that rather than if if vendors don't feel like they can reveal the source code, or if the source code would be too difficult to interpret, they suggest a separate method, or they 
we're looking at machine learning where there's interpretability versus explainability. So like I said, this, they pulled this from machine learning where the model may be so complex that it's difficult or impossible to interpret unless you have a degree in that sort of thing or a lot of background. Interpretability here refers to reading and understanding the detection code. Explainability is whether it's easy to understand what it's looking for and why it fired. So related, but not exactly the same. So they gave a couple examples of what explainable detections might be. So here are three items. Number one, because the source domain looks algorithmically generated. So in that case, like I wouldn't need to see the detection logic. I know what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the domain. And is the domain good or bad? Because beaconing activity indicates C2 traffic. So that again, beaconing would immediately point me towards, hmm, does the source host have malware on it or whatever the internal, I guess, source or source of destination because connection occurred outside of regular working hours. Like that's another thing like, oh, was the person that was involved in this working during that period of time? I can go and ask them that. Those are fairly simple examples, but those are interesting. So they provide some initial guidance on what content providers should be adding for explainability, which they're pretty good. Some good ones were, for example, including the IOCs and the raw event data. That'd be super helpful. Guiding further investigation. That's really what the tier one and some tier two analysts need. What are the next steps? Describing circumstances where the detection may fail. That one's a super helpful one. That one, generally speaking, most analysts have to figure out simply through experience that, oh, this one always triggers when this happens. So I have no complaints about those additional explainability, but I'd love to see the companies do these. Generally speaking, I only see companies do like one of them. Like that example I made earlier about that network IDS where they provided half of, or the, the, the packet that triggered it, the contents of the packet, and that's it. And finally, they finished by asking, is explainability enough or do we need access to the detection code? Frankly, I'd love access to the detection code. For atomic de detections and correlation rules, I think, yes, the code is probably not that complicated or special, although that may be why they don't want you to have access to it. You may be like, huh. But I would accept explainability, especially for the AI machine learning detections and maybe statistics-based rules, because I don't have that background in machine learning. So, Yeah, I think for AI and ML, you have to do the explainability. There's just no way you're going to get to the actual code, the interpretability. Uh, interpretability. Yeah. Damn it. I was trying to find it. <laughs> it's got a lot of syllables. One of them 50-cent words. Well, with the explainability, though, maybe this is my own paranoia, that the explanation may be, it could be possible that they don't want to indicate that they made a mistake. So they may make the explanation vague enough to indicate that it could be something plausible, but not necessarily exactly what the problem was. You know, there's been instances where there's been racial bias and facial recognition software, but they wouldn't want to say that, you know, there's a bias in our AL or our, our, our AI or ML. Instead, they would give some other plausible explanation for why it triggered as it did. Yeah. So why does this matter? Well, atomic detections have been failing us for frankly years at this point in time, and we need to move off them where possible. But moving to these more complicated detections without the vendors providing us the explainability to actually action them is also a different mistake and one that was made, you know, 10 years ago, eight years ago. Uh, in addition, older. well, I, I'm talking, I've only been in the industry for 11 years, so 
And more and more companies are getting into the detection business. I find this fascinating. I've spoken with two companies in the last six months who a significant portion of their product is selling use cases to companies. I don't want to name them, but I just find that super interesting. And it makes sense because, we, I mean, David and I have talked before about how the current model where you buy a SIM and you have to build your own use cases is not sustainable. But on the other hand, simply buying use cases, especially if you cannot see what the use cases are or tune them yourself because it's all a black box, that's not great either. So, but anyways, there's, there's some questions around how to determine the content is good, especially if you can't look at the content. You almost have to purchase it or do like a like a POC and run it. And that's I imagine that's fairly, fairly heavy lift. Yeah, because all organizations are unique. Yeah. Yeah. That's what happened with the Splunk. I was so excited the first time I went to dot comp and they talked about their security use cases and like the, like that app that they have in there mm-hmm. and every year yeah, security essentials yeah every year i go and they talk about that and they talk about their security their stories and every year i go home and i try a couple of them to try and see if i can get them to work and they always require a ton of work to get customized for our environment and they're never as successful as i wish that they were so what should you do about it well, if you use an MDR or MSSP, find one that's willing to open up their logic to you. Maybe they co-manage the SIM with you and they've got to put the content in your SIM. You might be able to write the contract such that you own the content so that when they leave, they don't just take it all with them. Push back on opaque detections. Whenever a vendor comes to you with that, don't just give in to it. Even if interpretability is not possible, but you'll want to say, you'll want to be like, all right, so if this is a black box, this is an AI machine learning one. How do we action it? Where's the explainability? What should we be looking at? All that stuff. And when you roll out a new internal rule, you should include all those explainability things as well for all of your internal rules. That documentation should exist. It should include a procedure for how do you investigate and respond. It should include a list of known false positives in places where it falls down and doesn't work. It should include the when the, the report that's presented for the analyst should include the IOCs and the raw event data. That list for explainability is actually a really great list for how you should present your own custom internally generated content. And that may be in the alert itself, or maybe there's a link to wiki site, which has all that information. That should all be either in the alert or linked and easily accessible. Yeah, I wonder if this is an opportunity for a third party to come out and start reading these, the content or or do some kind of validation or certification for third-party produced content, kind of like a underwriter's laboratory for content. So that's all we have for today. Thanks for listening to the Security Serengeti podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Serengeti Sec and subscribe and listen on your favorite podcast app.